we've been unpacking uh, the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians these last number of, of months now, and uh, we come to the final chapter, chapter 5 this morning. Uh, we've been uh, talking and looking at this message of hope uh, and the clear charge to walk in holiness in the midst of a hostile world, right? That's, that's the culture that this, this young church in Thessalonica found themselves in. And uh, if we got real honest, we're probably not a far cry from what they were experiencing uh, back in their times in our world today. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, Paul's teaching on the rapture of the church, and that always generates all kinds of questions and curiosities and uh, emails and all that kind of fun stuff. And so that's good. I, I pray that you uh, take a deep dive into the Word of God, that you not would, would not just rely on the voice of one preacher or pastor, but that you would search the Scriptures yourselves to see if these things are so, right? That we would be Bereans, students of the Word of God. Um, so last week we looked at um, first, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 4 verses uh, 13 through 18 and I mentioned that um, that passage of passage of scripture is perhaps uh, the clearest teaching that we have on the rapture of the church uh, we talked about obviously Jesus's words in John chapter 14 we uh, jumped on over to Paul's words to the uh, church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 but in chapter 4 Paul was addressing the question that was uh, circulating in the church regarding those who had fallen asleep, right? Not that they took a nap, but he's talking about those, those who've died in Christ. Interestingly, every time Paul makes reference to death in the, in, the, in the context of falling asleep, he's always referring to Christians. It's because with the expectation that as Christians, we will, that is not the end for us, we will live again. Right, And so he's addressing some questions about those who had fallen asleep. Um, there, were some, there were some questions that were um, being stirred up within the church of Thessalonica. There were some letters that would have, were appearing to come from the Apostle Paul that were circulating within the church. He mentions some, some talk amongst one another. In fact, even uh, demonic spirits um, sowing in lies of discord. And, and here was the church, right? They were, they've embraced Christ in the midst of a very Christless culture, right? And they're kind of pushing back against what was the norm of the day. And as a result of that, they're experiencing hostility. They're experiencing all kinds of trials and tribulations and, and the lies that was being circulated was that they were entering into the day of the Lord and it freaked them out. They were worried that they missed the rapture, that they worried, they worried, they knew what the day of the Lord would include and, and they wanted to stay far from that and they were concerned. But what about if we're in the day of the Lord, then what happened to those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ? To which Paul reply, re, replies in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For the Lord himself will, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the, the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And here's what will happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, yet you're not in the midst of the day of the Lord. You've not missed the coming of Christ. Therefore, you can comfort one another with these words. It wouldn't have been very comforting if they missed it. So in chapter 4, he's addressing the concern of the Thessalonian believers regarding their departed loved ones and how the Lord's return affected them. And now as we come to chapter 5, he will address their concern, those who were living at the time, those who were reading this, this letter from Paul, um, and every one of us, those of us who are alive, awaiting the return of Christ. How many are awaiting the return of Christ? All right, and Paul lets us know how we are to live in the midst of that waiting. Paul will address the subject of the, of the day of the Lord in our text this morning, and uh, that's the title of our, our message, uh, The Day of the Lord, and I've got the, the large task of using a very short amount of time to present a very large concept, and so I encourage you to, uh, as I said before, Take a deep dive into your own personal study on the subject. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful study to go through. Um, the expression, the day of the Lord, um, and there's other um, uses of, of, of that word, the day of the Lord, or it's referred to as the day, or that day, or, or that great day. Um, it's not something that, 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 that the people of the time are unfamiliar with. The, the Old and New Testament speak a lot about the day of the Lord. In fact, over 75 times just in the Old Testament is there references to the day of the Lord. Now, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we, we, we tend to think just off the, off the cuff that that's something to look forward to, kind of like Father's Day, right? It's kind of like, oh, oh, great, it's a, it's a day of the Lord. That's not what the day of the Lord is. A, a, a deep dive into studying what those passages I was referring to um, tell us about the day of the Lord. We, we, rec- we see that the day of the Lord is a day of wrath, a day of God's wrath. It's a day of distress, it's a day of destruction and desolation, a, a day of darkness and gloom and intense battles. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> That's why I love expository preaching. You've got to preach through where you are, right? It's important to not just preach on things that give us the warm and fuzzies, right? But this is what the word is teaching. And so the day of the Lord was a day to avoid. Isaiah records that it's a day of judgment and vengeance. Further reading on the subject reveals that it is a day of of judgment against nations and against people who have rejected and opposed God and his people. We see as we study through also that, that God will unleash judgment upon the nation of Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. That's the purpose 
of the tribulation. It's not like God is just so angry that he's just unleashing wrath upon people. But if there's a purpose to that, it's to get the attention of Israel so that, and that's where we find our, its climax in that, at, at that point under the wrath of God, their eyes are open and they realize that he who they rejected is in fact their Messiah and the 144,000 Jews come to Christ. And they preach the gospel, and during the tribulation, we see people coming to Christ in a, an incredible way. And so the tribulation, God's wrath being poured on the earth, comes with purpose, with intent. And so everything that we read in the Old Testament from, from Isaiah and Zephaniah and Obadiah and Amos and Joel and Malachi and Ezekiel, when you consider all that it has to say, it's no wonder that they were concerned that here they are in that day. It's a day to be avoided. Well, that's kind of like where, we're, where we pick up this morning. I want to give you a little bit of a context of the day of the Lord and how they perceived it, and then Paul will address and comfort them in regards to their concern that they might be in the midst of the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter five, let's turn together. Um, I'm gonna pick up at verse one. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. A couple things that are worth mentioning here. Paul is now broadening the conversation from, from the rapture, that one specific moment, moment in time. He's mentioning, um, to, he's addressing a much broader area of the end times prophecy and that includes, as we'll see, the rapture, uh, the second coming, and, and, and so on and so forth. But he uses this terminology, times and seasons. The Greek words there that are used are chronos and kairos, times and seasons. Oftentimes those words are both interpreted as, as time. And, and, and while they sound the same, there is a distinctly there's a distinct difference between the two. Kronos has to do uh, with our time frame. It has to do with minutes and seconds and days and, and calendar events. It's that arena of time in which we live in. But Kronos has to do with God's time. I mean, Kairos has to do with God's timing. How God intersects or comes in or intervenes in the midst of our Kronos. And so when Kronos and Kairos, our time and God time, intersect, it's a God moment, right? It, it's then God is the one who is, who is, there's something significant, something sacred, something intentional about that moment. And so putting these words together, it is clear that Paul is addressing their question is about end time events. And namely, how does our Kronos intersect with God's kairos. And notice what he says here. He says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
as a thief in the night. In other words, at a time when, when nobody is ready. The idea of a thief in the night is a picture of, of surprise. I mean, if you knew that somebody was about to break into your home and you knew when they were going to come, how many? No, it wouldn't happen because you were awaiting that arrival. Well, Jesus is saying that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It brings us back to what I mentioned last week about the biblical doctrine of imminence. The coming of Jesus, the idea that the coming of Jesus can come at any moment without any announcement, any prophetic thing happening, that in any moment, Christ can come. Imminence is something that is, that is ascribed to both the rapture and the day of the Lord. And there's three elements to this idea of eminence. The first one has to do with the certainty that he and it, the day of the Lord, can come at any moment. Secondly, it has to do with the uncertainty of the timing of that moment. We don't know when those things are going to happen. And then thirdly, the fact that no prophesied event stands between the believer and that hour. So just think that, that, that that's what imminency has to do with it. At any moment, without any event necessary, the rapture, that day of the Lord, can come. I'll address that in a moment. Um, let's take a look at a couple passages that speak to, of eminence. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 and what's known as the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is speaking about the end of the age. Um, Matthew 24 and verse 36, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now look what he says. He says in verse 40, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore, Jesus says, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief is coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Imminent. No, notice, he's, not, no, he's, not, he's speaking about two events here. He's speaking about both the rapture as well as the day of the Lord. Luke records, it, uh, records this about that conversation. He says, stay, in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And we see in verse 40, he says, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now getting back to our text this morning, Paul mentions that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night at an hour that you do not expect. 
And so we see that imminency has to do with both the rapture and the day of the Lord. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It's my conviction that the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, the time where God is going to pour out his wrath on all of those that have opposed him and his people will coincide with the moment when the church is removed from the earth. Now, let me just repeat what I said last week. This is a subject that Christians have, different, have had differing opinions on for centuries. I, I love preaching on subjects that I can be dogmatic about. I, I, love, I love preaching on subjects that I'm willing to die for, right? Because I know that I know that I know that I'm right because the scripture is very clear and it has been embraced by, by, the, by church history and, and, and we recognize it as true. This is not necessarily one of those subjects. The, this area of eschatology has had, um, has had varying opinions from very respectable, godly theologians over the ages. And so while I hold my, my position with, with conviction and consistency in the way that I interpret all scripture, I also recognize that, that godly men and women hold to different views. Now, I recognize that there may be scriptures here and there that, that may bring into question my conclusion. It is my conviction that in keeping with my commitment to the reading and interpreting scripture in context, it is my conviction that when reading all of 1 Thessalonians, all of 2 Thessalonians, all of the book of Revelation, we can we consider what Jesus talked about in John chapter 14 and what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is my conviction that the church will be raptured, coinciding with that day. And we could disagree on that but we ought not to divide or disrespect one another who holds the differing views, amen? Uh, here's some things that we, we can agree on. Jesus is coming again. That's, that's, we need to recognize the fact that ultimately Jesus wins and Jesus is coming again and we need to ready our hearts for his coming by bringing the truth of the gospel to the world because it is the only hope of the world. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. But I will read and state what I said. It is my conviction that the day of the Lord will coincide with the moment when the church is removed from the earth, and I'm intentionally using the word coincide as opposed to the word after, because from a time perspective, it's going to appear to take place at the very same time. There's, there's, there's a distinction with very little difference. We looked last week at Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and he describes that moment that's going to take place. He says the church will be removed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That's pretty quick. Within a nanosecond of a moment, the day of the Lord will begin. And so 
If the church is removed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and that ushers in the day of the Lord, it's really hard to measure chronologically, although it is after that moment. And so in the twinkling of an eye, the church is gone, and we enter into that day, the day of the Lord. So what's important? As I said before, both the day of the Lord and the rapture are presented as imminent events. And the only way they can maintain their eminency is by coinciding with each other. For instance, if, if, we, if we believe that the rapture takes place first and then the day of the Lord, well, once the rapture takes place, now we know when the day of the Lord is going to happen and it robs it of eminency. Even more so, if, 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 if you're post-millennial, if you believe that the, the rapture is going to take place after the tribulation, then you can't hold to imminency because now you'll know going through that seven-year tribulation, you're going to watch the clock and you're going to know when the second coming, uh, or when the, the, the church is going to be raptured. And so you can't be, you can't maintain imminency when it comes to the rapture then. You'll know when it's going to happen. Paul mentions that day will come as a thief in the night. No one's going to know the day of the hour. When people are crying out, peace and safety, he says it's going to be at that moment where sudden destruction will come upon them as, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And he says they will not escape. It's very interesting. I, I was just thinking in my mind, I'm like, if you're visiting the last two weeks, you probably think this is all we talk about around here. Um, yes, we've been going through Thessalonians. This, this is, this is, I, I love the subject, um, but because I know people build their whole ministry around this, and that's, that's certainly not something we do. But we also recognize it's in the Word of God, and we want, we want to teach it, right? And so look, so Paul mentions that the day will come as a thief in the night, and he says, when people are saying there's peace and security, it's at that moment that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Notice, he says, sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Well, who's the they? The they is those who are left on the earth who are under the wrath of God. Now here comes one of my favorite buts in the Bible. Verse four. He says, look, look it says, um, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you who are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. But you. He's making a clear con contrast between what they will experience and what you will experience. How they will enter into the day of the Lord and how you will not enter into the day of the Lord. He's speaking about what their experience is in contrast to what the church's experience is going to be. Since the rapture will take place, and all of those who are living and all of the dead, dead saints will come into the presence of the Lord, Paul encourages them by saying, you need not worry about the day of the Lord. You're going to be safe. You're going to be with Jesus. You're going to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, over the course of the, the next several verses, Paul will offer three reasons why they should encourage and comfort one another about the events that are yet to come. Now listen, if, if, if the church was going to go through the day of the Lord, there's not much encouragement found in that. Right? 
And when we, you know, there's, there's some people believe that, well, when he talks about the wrath there of God, it's referring to eternal wrath. You know, if you read through all of 1 Thessalonians, there is not one mention about the eternal wrath of God, about hell, the, the, you know, the whole forever thing. It's only referring to the wrath of God during the day of tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians, it's only mentioned once in chapter 1 and verse 9, and it's ascribed to those who have rejected Christ at the end of the age. And so if this idea of the wrath of God that we're going to avoid was only, was only, for, only for eternal significance, it's taking a lot of passages out of context. But look what he says here. He says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. He says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. He says, we are not of the night or of darkness. It's very interesting. Paul will, when Paul is speaking about the church, he will speak about it in the first person. He'll, he'll, use, he'll use a lot of our and we and us there. When he, and, and, and he's talking about us who are going to escape that. When he's talking about them or they, those who are in darkness, he refers to them, obviously, as a separate group of people. Let's see, let's, let's, let's see that. Look, he says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope, of salvation. Now listen to what he says in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, because of that, encourage one another with those words or encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul's final words in this section are, therefore, in other words, in light of what I just said to you about the wrath that is to come, the day of the Lord, he said, you can encourage one another with those words. Why? Because you were not destined for wrath. Now, Paul will highlight three areas in the following text, why and how he can encourage the church with the fact that they're not going to experience the day of the Lord. And that we see that laid out in the rest of the passage. Three reasons why they could find comfort and encouragement in the fact that they will escape the day of the Lord. Well, number one, they live in a different realm than unbelievers. They live in a different realm than unbelievers. In verse four, he says, you are not in darkness. In verse five, he says, we are not of darkness. We are not of the night. Right? We, 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 we see in contrast all over that text, Paul presenting an us and them contrast, right? We are of the day, they are of the night. We are of the light, they are of darkness. And those who are in darkness are going to come under the wrath of God, but we are not destined for this. Now, this is not referring to a, a state of mind, right? Like we're in the, we're in the know, we're in the, you know, we, we've kind of seen the light, He's not referring to a state of mind, but a, but a state of being. 
You live in a different realm. Your disposition before God is different. My eschatology, in my, my study of the end times is really tied to my awareness of my position in Christ, that my disposition before God has changed. I'm not what I was. You're different. Paul, Paul says this in, first, in, in Colossians chapter one. He said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. That's not what we were, are anymore. Ephesians chapter five and verse eight, Paul says this, for at one time you were darkness. How many were darkness at one time? All right, how many at one time we were under the wrath of God? I mean, if you were born, then you were under the wrath of God at one time in your life. But when you've embraced Christ, you came out from being under the wrath of God and you came into being in the favor of God as a child of God, as a redeemed of the Lord. And what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Peter chimes in in his epistle. He says, you're, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, look, called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so the reason that we can draw comfort from the fact that we are not going to be in that day of the Lord period is because we are not in the same realm as unbelievers. The day of the Lord, the tribulation, is to bring God's wrath upon the earth with the intention of people turning to Christ, specifically Israel. As they then embrace their Messiah, Christ as their Messiah, and the 144,000 come to Christ, they preach the gospel, and there's an incredible revival that takes place during the tribulation. Many of which will be martyred for their faith, by the way. And so if the idea of God keeping us from the wrath of God was just to preserve them, well, the, fact, the very fact that many Christians are gonna die during that time wouldn't suggest he does a very good job. But those are, new te those, are, those are saints that come to faith during the tribulation, many of whom will pay the ultimate price. And so we live in a different realm than unbelievers. Another reason why we can draw comfort from Paul's words is that we or they enjoy a special relationship with God as sons of light, as sons of the day. That's the terminology he uses in verse five. He says, you, you are children of light. He says in verse five, you, you're a children of the day. Verse eight, he throws himself into, he says, we, we belong to the day. Sounds like a great song for somebody to write, right? We belong to the day, right? We're children of light, we're children of the day, we, we belong to the day. This is the flip side of what we have come out of as children of darkness. We are no longer in darkness, but we are children of light, we're children of the day. The realm, the, the arena, the position that we live has been changed, and now we are children of light in contrast to those who are children of darkness, those who, have, who, who are opposed to God. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this in John chapter 8 and verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And I love this. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, now you are the light of the world. We have a special place, a special relationship with God. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What is Jesus saying here? That we share a special relationship with God that is only available to those who have embraced Christ. Those who are children of light, children of the day, need not fear that they will suffer the fate of those who are in the realm of the night and of darkness. Believers are not in darkness. They possess an entirely different nature. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness. As one theologian concludes, the day of the Lord is for night people. Therefore, day people need not fear the day of the Lord, for they will not be a part of it. That's a great point, because here's the thing, as I said before, if we're gonna be a part of it, it's really hard to comfort one another with those words. I don't find much encouragement in the fact that we're gonna go and be a part of a wrath that is being sent upon the earth to get the attention to current to Christ when we've already done that. Which is why we find comfort in this last point that I wanna point out. We find comfort because they have a promise of deliverance and salvation and life. We see that in verse nine. Paul makes the clearest statement he can to assure the Thessalonians that they have not entered the day of the Lord, an assurance that is only extended to the children of light, the children of the day. He says this, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. God has not destined us for wrath. Now, again, there is no mention of eternal wrath in all of 1 Thessalonians. First, chapter, second, right on through five. This is speaking specifically of the wrath of God during the time of the tribulation, during the great day of the Lord. God has not destined us for wrath. Why not? Why aren't we destined for wrath? I mean, we were under the wrath of God. We were children of darkness. We were children of the night. It's not that God decided that he's just not gonna unleash his wrath upon us. God is just, he cannot, he cannot do that. God, there must be somebody that pays a price for our sin. There must be a recipient of the wrath of God that comes upon a sinful person. You see, every single person is born in sin. The wrath of God is directed towards a sinful humanity. But when I embraced Christ as my Lord and my Savior, the wrath of God that was directed towards me, when I embraced him as my Lord and Savior, that wrath was redirected off of me and poured out on the Son. And Jesus received and absorbed all the wrath of God upon himself and there in such a way that there is no wrath left for the child of God. Listen, folks, that's the gospel. 
That, you might not understand anything that I'm talking about this morning, but let me just kind of zoom in on this really important piece that man is a sinner in need of a savior. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, the scripture says. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world, John writes, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What does that look like? The wrath of God that was directed towards me is now redirected towards his son. John will write in his, in his gospel, he that has the son has life, but he who does not have the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, here's the deal. One of two realities for every human being. They are either under the wrath of God and they will, they will absorb it themselves and spend the rest of eternity under the wrath of God or they will embrace the finished work of Christ and the wrath of God that was, that was directed towards us is redirected towards him and Christ absorbs it as we so beautifully sang this morning. It is finished. It is done. And I walk out as the righteousness of God. Children of light of day. That's the gospel. And so we avoid the wrath of God. Not only will we avoid the ultimate wrath of God that we're all under being born in sin, but Paul points out that we'll also avoid the wrath, the temporary wrath that's being sent upon the earth. He mentions it right in the opening of the chapter when speaking to the church and affirming their embracing of faith in verse nine of chapter one. He says, you, you turn to God from idols. You did that and you served the living and true God and to wait and you waited for his son from heaven whom he raised up from the dead. Jesus, look, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And then he lays out for them throughout the rest of the chapter what that looks like. What we can comfort one another with, according to Paul, is that the children of light will face neither the temporary wrath that is assigned to the day of the Lord, nor the eternal wrath that all who have rejected Christ will remain under for all of eternity. Now that's pretty heavy. So what do we do with that? I mean, what, what, what do we do? Well, listen, if, if, you've not, if you've not asked Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and embraced him as the only means of your salvation, today is the day of salvation. What do we do with that? We embrace the son. Nobody's promised tomorrow, right? We can't guarantee that we'll have time to make that decision. I'd encourage you to embrace the son right now. But for, for, for you who have done that, you who have embraced the Son, what do we do with these truths? What do we do with these, with these truths? Paul gives us some instruction in verse 8. He says, look, since we belong to the day, here's, here's the instruct for the church. Here's, now we, here's how we, we are to respond to what he is saying. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul admonishes them this. Listen, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Be sober. 
have an informed sense of awareness of what's going on around you. He's not just referring to the, you know, the, the idea of getting drunk, although obviously that, 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 that applies. But he's talking about being sober, being aware, being alert with what's going on around you as opposed to a drunk person who really can't grasp what's going on around them, right? Aren't those fun people to watch at times, right? He's saying be sober. They were to be equipped with the believer's armor. He says be sober and then they're to be equipped with the believer's armor and specifically he points us to the breastplate and the helmet. The breastplate protects the heart, primarily the, the center point of our emotions. It protects how you feel. The helmet, it protects the head. It's where our, our brain resides, our minds. And so the helmet, it protects what we, what we think and is instruct to this anxious group of Christians who, who feared that they may be entering into that dreaded day of the Lord. He says, let how you feel, the breastplate, be informed by your faith in God and your love for God and for one another. Put on the breastplate, right? Let your emotions be informed by your faith and your love for God and for one another. And then he says, let how you think, let your helmet be informed by the hope of your salvation, right? Let, your, let what you think be informed by the hope of your salvation, God's ability to deliver his people. And you see, when I consider that, and I recognize that I can trust God with how I feel about the situation, and I can trust God about what I think about the situation, then I can embrace these words in full context of what Paul intended them for. In verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing because he has saved us oh there's a wrath that is to come we don't know the day or the hour but before the wrath is poured out Christ is going to gather his bride and we will be forever with the Lord comfort one another with those words as you see the world falling apart all around us. And all the things, listen, God is sovereign over the universe. He is in control. He is not moving to plan B. He is sovereign over it all. And you know what? If you can trust him with your life here, you can trust him with your life there, after as well. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that you absorbed all the wrath of God that was directed towards us upon yourself. And as a result, we walk out as the redeemed of God. I pray if there's anybody here that, that, that hears the sound of my voice that has is, that is not embraced Christ as Savior, I pray, Lord, that today that they would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus the only solution, the only way that man can be re reconciled to God. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. Amen. If that's you this morning, you prayed and you're, you're wanting to grow. After our service, our elders are going to be up here. And if you want to begin a journey or recommit your journey to Christ at the end of service, come up and pray with our elders. They're here to serve you and pray with you and, and walk with you as you journey towards Christ. Amen.